Article 9 also gave us all sorts of proof texts, or also texts that talked about the, um, the Trinity. One of the additional ones I'd like to read with you this evening is from John 17, just a few verses from John 17, recognizing that the focus is Articles 8 and 9 of the Belgic Confession. John 17 is that famous prayer of Jesus, where Jesus first of all prays for himself, then he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for all believers. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 20 and read to the end of the prayer, the end of the chapter. So my prayer is not for the disciples alone. My prayer is also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as, I, as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you stopped off at one of the local donut holes with some friends or if you go there for your coffee break and meet some regulars, what do you talk about? When you're sitting at home in your living room or when you're lingering over a beverage after meal, what's your conversation about? What do you talk about with the person who cuts your hair? Well, one can only guess, of course. I'm not there with you in those conversations, but I suspect that our conversations cover many, any number of things like work and children and health and family and the government and their latest decisions and the latest world events and the economy maybe even the state of the church, but I suspect the latter topic is only among a select few people. I remember when I was a teen, we would sit for hours in coffee shops and other places with friends talking about relationships, you know, boyfriend-girlfriend stuff, and we did so earnestly because we had all the answers. And then, of course, we got not to forget that one of the first things we often talk about is the weather. That's something so persuasive, or pervasive in our conversations that no conversation seems to be complete without at least some remark about the cold, the temperatures, the heat, the sun, the rain, shine, the rain and the sunshine and so on. Now to talk about these sorts of things and many others to some degree makes sense. These are the things that affect us from day to day. The things we talk about over a cup of coffee or some other beverage are the things of our time. Our views on whether or not Jesus is divine, our view on whether or not we agree with election or predestination or infralapsarianism 
or women in office or those kinds of things are hardly the place and hardly the topic of one's life hardly the matter that you take up with your car salesman or with the person who is cutting your hair or with your dentist or your doctor I wonder how often such theological matters are discussed at Tim Hortons or Starbucks with complete strangers. I suspect hardly ever these days. Let's face it, in the vast majority of our conversations, I suspect that we hardly ever deal with theological issues. Although, I gotta be quick to say that there have been some changes as of late. After all, Pastor Amanda is involved in faith and hops at a bar, talking about those kinds of things that I just said. And her husband on campus is doing, is doing the same sorts of things at the University of Waterloo, over some drinks, and they're talking about all kinds of issues of life. And then there's the Vine, our own group of young adults sitting at Tim Hortons talking faith. This week, did you notice it in the bulletin? Thursday night, 7 to 9, eschatology. If you want to join them, have a conversation about eschatology. The doctrine of the last days. Good for them. But these are all planned discussions. Many of the questions of faith are not usually part of a social time in a public place. And on the whole, on the whole, I suspect, unless I'm sitting with the wrong crowds, discussions in coffee shops or pubs or the salon or whatever are not exactly covering the theological issues of the day. But there was a time when we are told it was an ordinary and it was a regular occurrence. Dr. Neil Plantinga, in introducing his discussion on the Belgic Confession Articles 8 and 9, writes this. Oh, this just makes me cringe when I listen to this. But imagine, imagine this. Your dentist is tinkering with a particularly sensitive tooth. He has cotton hooks and mirrors, a small vacuum cleaner, and both hands in your mouth. Your eyes, which have nowhere else to go, wander to his name tag. Abraham Weinstein, DDS. That should say something to you. He probes a place where the pain is exquisite. Tell me, he says, do you really think Jesus was divine? I don't know about you, but I suspect I would probably be, be stunned to hear such a question from a dentist, especially one who's got all that stuff in my mouth and with the name of Abraham Weinstein. I suspect that if I was to say yes, he just might poke a little harder and I would kind of jump out of the chair. We don't talk about those things with our barber or the dentist or a waitress. As mentioned, theology is hardly a matter of casual conversation these days, but in the fourth century and at the time of the Reformation, theological argumentation was a street corner affair, a dinner table affair, a coffee shop affair. If they had radio and television in those days, it maybe have permeated the programs much as discussions about sex, crime, and economy do nowadays. As E.T. Thompson has written in his book, Through the Ages, A History of the Christian Church, quote, the debate was conducted with the violence of a political convention. Everyone entered into it. 
Men who met to transact business neglected their bargaining to talk theology. Arius put his doctrine into verse to popular tunes and it was sung and whistled in the streets. The arguments were punctuated with fists and clubs." Unquote. Can you imagine fists and clubs? The debate over women in office didn't get to that point, thankfully. The intense concern of the time was over one of the most basic and most important doctrines of the Christian faith, namely the doctrine of the Trinity. Can you imagine fists and clubs about the Trinity? Now the word doctrine merely means teaching, so it's not a word we need to be afraid of. The Trinity was the talk of the town, of the land, of the barbershop, of the restaurant. Everywhere people were discussing the issue. The creeds, the apostles, Nicene and Athanasian creeds, all dated in the 4th century through the 6th century, as well as the confessions of the Reformation era, all contained confessions concerning the teaching of Scripture on the Trinity. As a matter of fact, the Athanasian Creed, page 515 in the back of your Psalter hymnals, written in opposition to a man by the name of Arius, who denied the Trinity, goes so far as to say that in order to be saved, one must hold to the Catholic, universal faith, which is this. In order to be saved, one must hold to this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. The Jehovah Witnesses are Neo-Arians, by the way. They've picked up on the teachings of Arius of long ago, which of course makes the Athanasian Creed today as relevant as ever. But while those in the early centuries and at the time of the Reformation got all excited about this doctrine, this teaching of Scripture, and even made sure that the creeds and confessions mirrored their excitement and the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity, the reality is that modern Christianity doesn't seem to share that excitement. I have no idea how excited you were when Articles 8 and 9 was read, or were being read. And perhaps even knowing that this evening's sermon was going to be about the Trinity maybe didn't raise all that terribly many excited expectations. A baseball game or a football game can make us much more excited than this doctrine, which is really an old, old teaching. And apparently even some seminary students have been infected with the modern thought pattern, thinking that this doctrine under discussion is relatively unimportant. There was a seminary professor who asked a number of seminary students, what was distinctive about the Christian understanding of God? Just so you're clear, this is not Calvin Seminary. Although I'd be interested to hear their answers too. But some suggested, so what was distinctive about the Christian understanding of God? And these are seminary students, and they came back with words like transcendent, love. One said the Christians understanding, understand God to be personal. To the professor's astonishment, not one of the aspiring pastors said that the Christian understanding of God was distinctly triune. Nobody so much as mentioned or even alluded to the Trinity. And yet the triune nature of God is precisely what makes the Christian 
faith's understanding of God distinctive. There is no other faith under the sun that speaks about the three in oneness of their God. This is a uniquely Christian confession. Article 8, we believe in one God who is one single essence in whom there are three persons. And since the coming of Jesus, the church has confessed this truth. Ever since people started writing about God and talking about God, the concept of the Trinity, and later the word Trinity has been part and parcel of their thinking and their talking. Mind you, you're not going to find words like Trinity or Triune in the Bible. Nowhere does the scriptures use those specific terms. It's a word used by the church to describe the Lord. But just because the word Trinity or Triune itself does not appear in the Bible, that doesn't make it an unbiblical doctrine, as some cults and sects tend to suggest. There are numerous passages in the Bible that speak about the three-in-oneness of God. We read many of them in Article 9. There's a whole series of texts but don't consider that series of texts to be exhaustive by any means. And so it is that the whole concept of the Trinity, or perhaps better stated, the doctrine of the Trinity, is not something that some old theologian dreamed up. On the contrary, while the theologians may have given it a name, it is God himself who reveals himself to us in such a fashion. It is God who reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three gods, one God. The Father is God, the Son, or Jesus, is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, and likewise the Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son. Each person of the Trinity, as the Belgian Confession puts it, is different from the other, yet they are all one. And so the Confession wants to make clear that the Bible neither teaches monotheism or polytheism. The Lord has not revealed himself as only one God, one person, which is monotheism, but one God, three persons. Nor has the Lord revealed himself as being three gods, polytheism. But again, one God, three persons, a triunity. And because such people as Arius who denied the Trinity challenged this doctrine of the early church, and because it was still challenged in the days of Guido de Bray in the 1500s, the confessions go to great lengths to teach what the Trinity means. But when done reading, one can only confess an inability to understand. The whole concept really is mind-boggling. It's always been a difficult doctrine to explain and understand on the part of professors and theologians and non-theologians, people like you and me. And so we say that based on the Word of God, we confess that we believe in the mystery of the three-in-one. Boy, it's a mystery. As we dig into the mystery, 
and seek to understand it with our mind, with our limited minds, we have to be careful that we do not tread in places where God would not have us go. We have to be careful because we're dealing here with the personhood of God. And yet people have tried to illustrate the triunity of God. Those of you who have been to dive into doctrine have heard some of these. People have thought about it for centuries and teachers have come up with a multitude of, of examples. And so let me give you a few of those so that you get some feeling for that. Some have suggested that we can understand something of the Trinity by looking at water. Water has three forms, solid, liquid, vapor, still only one substance. Others suggest we can understand the Trinity better if we think of the Lord as, as a person with three roles to play. Teacher, mother, wife. One woman, three roles. Others use the egg as an example. Three parts of the yolk, the white, and the shell, yet one egg. The Christian Reformed Church has adopted the triangle as a symbol of the Trinity, with each of the three corners and three sides making a whole. Actually, all the examples fall short of explaining the Trinity. Perhaps Jesus, in the passage we read earlier from John 17, gives us the best earthly comparison to the Trinity. Jesus said in John 17, 20 and following, my prayer is not for them, his disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's interesting, in these verses, the Father and the Son together are compared to the church, at least to the church as it ought to be. In other places, the Holy Spirit is also included. Maybe it strikes us as an odd comparison since the church we know is so broken up and scattered and made up of all sorts of differing people that is therefore perhaps hard to understand any comparison to the unity of God. And yet Jesus makes the comparison in his high priestly prayer. God is three persons, but there's only one God. The church is many persons, but there's basically in reality only one church. That is, across the centuries and across the world, there is only one true group of people who call Jesus their Lord and Savior. And so in that sense, the church is like God, I suppose. And yet even that comparison falls far short of the great mystery confessed by Articles 8 and 9 of the Belgic Confession. Basically, as Article 9 states, although this doctrine surpasses human understanding, we nevertheless believe in it now through the word, waiting to know and to enjoy it fully in heaven. 1 Corinthians 13, now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. The wonder of the Trinity is beyond compare. The mystery is complete. And while we may not be able to understand it, nonetheless, we must be very aware of the fact that this is how God himself revealed himself to us. Now, there are many who outrightly deny the Trinity. That's not something of the fourth or the sixth centuries or the Reformation era alone. The Jews, the Unitarians, the Jehovah Witnesses, 
the Mormons, some of whom gather right down this road here at the corner of Bleams and Strasburg Roads, and others all deny the triunity of God. And these people, these groups, plus many other religions of the world, like Islam, Buddhism, and others, who are either polytheistic or monotheistic, have and continue to severely challenge the truth of the scriptures. And while they all may be very sincere about their faith and very dedicated, and while they may claim, claim a deep reverence for God, nonetheless their not knowing or their outright rejection of the Trinity means that they do not worship a God who truly saves. Not recognizing Jesus as God or the Holy Spirit as God means that they really can't celebrate Christmas as the shepherds did in Bethlehem. Those who deny the Trinity become fatalistic in their religion. Their God waits for what people do. Their God does not act first, but he waits for people to act. And he waits for people to somehow find him, if he's even findable. And therefore, salvation becomes possible only on the basis of acceptable human behavior on good works. And sin, in such views, is often denied or reduced to human weakness. Those who confess the Trinity confess that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and forgave us all our sin, and he could do so because he was God. When there are people standing in Christian pulpits, and I've known them to stand there, declaring that Jesus is not God, but merely a good man or a concept of love or transcendent or something, then the very truth of Scripture, the very gospel is denied, and such, such preaching cannot be considered Christian, and perhaps people ought not to sit under such preaching. But perhaps as bad as those who outrightly reject the doctrine are those who yawn when they hear about it or who are bored by it all. For perhaps that would suggest that we are somehow bored with God and bored with his revelation, and bored with what he has done and with what he is doing and with who he is. The doctrine of the Trinity is so basic, it's so alive, it's so real. It touches us at every point of our lives. The Father is the creator allowing us to live and breathe and move here on earth. The Son is our redeemer taking away all of our sin, allowing us to celebrate his birth and his resurrection and granting us hope and courage for the future and for life to come. And the Holy Spirit is the one who cleanses us and lives in us, allowing us each day to live for him and to know him and to confess him. We live the whole of our lives in the presence of the triune God. We're even baptized into his name. And it's in his name that we go to the ends of the earth preaching the good news of salvation. Now this is eternal life. Jesus said in John 17, verse 3, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The Christian life is all about knowing God as Trinity. It is what makes our understanding of God unique in the religious world. Outside of this confession, 
there is, biblically speaking, confessionally speaking, only darkness and lostness. Now we do not see things clearly. One day we will see God face to face and behold his triunity. I'm not even sure that we'll understand it then. I suspect we won't. But so great is our God, the true God of heaven and earth, no one can tell us likewise. God is the holy and everlasting Trinity, one God, three persons. How do I know? The Bible tells me so. Is it important to know? Without such a confession, you're not a Christian, and so you have no place in his eternal kingdom. Believe on him, our gracious, almighty, saving God in Christ Jesus through the working of the Holy Spirit, and you will be saved. Such is the gospel. Amen. Father in heaven, you have reminded us of the doctrine of the Trinity. We'll be honest, we don't get it. It's so hard for us to understand. One God, three persons, how are we supposed to explain that? How are we supposed to understand that? And so, Lord, we pray that you would allow us to be wise as we think about these things not go beyond our understanding. And we pray, O Lord, that through the working of your Holy Spirit, we may accept by faith who you are. Truly, Lord, you are unique among all the gods of this earth. There is no God like you. There is no king, as we heard about this morning, like you. You alone are the true God. And we pray, O oh Lord, that as we take that message to this world, that people may understand, that people may see, that people may believe, that people may respond to you and know you and love you and serve you. We pray that for members of our own family. We pray that for members of our own communities. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you may be recognized as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to you we give the praise and the honor and the glory. Hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.